Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Discovery Debrief. We are now here for our eighth episode, talking about Star Trek Discovery's ninth episode. But uh, we've reached the end of chapter one of season one. So now we have a little bit of a wait until we actually see other episodes. But either way, hopefully we'll have some fun, quite a lot to talk about. I am, of course, co-host Chris Clow, and I am joined, as always, by our wonderful panel, Rachel Clow. Hello. Cicero Holmes. We didn't transmit to the Povins. The Povins transmitted to us. <laughs> Beautiful. And Zaki Hassan. That is a hard act to follow. I, I, I got nothing. <laughs> it's true. Cicero's putting us all to shame. That's okay. That's, that's a good thing. It's a team effort. Uh, it, always, as always. Solidarity, right? But... Uh, Wow, guys. So we've actually gotten through the whole first part. I mean, not the first half, obviously, but the first part of the season. And uh, long way. I I can't get it out of my head. I mean, we've got plenty of stuff to look forward to that's not necessarily Star Trek related between now and January 7th when the show comes back. But uh, I am going to probably be scratching my veins by the time we get to the new year, getting ready for... (laughs) Or whatever we've got coming up next but how's everyone doing and what has the week in trek like been for everybody obviously we're we're coming in a little bit later than normal because we had a little bit of some scheduling hiccups and we had a pretty big movie to watch this week in, in mine and zaki's case so cicero why don't we start with you it's been a little while so did you partake of any trek and or trek like phenomena since we last spoke? uh well there was uh i did check out uh the European satellite discovered an Earth-like planet uh, only 11, 11 yes. light years away. Uh, there was a meteor shower that people thought was UFO phenomena in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Hmm. And I didn't know and, that. Oh, you know, I think. I'm- yeah, it was a bright light, bright light in the sky that flashed in the sky. And <laughs> the Orville continues to get better. So... Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm still watching. I'm still watching. I'm still mm-hmm. liking. Uh, I, you know, I really enjoy it. And, and in fact, uh, as I run across more fellow nerds, I'm finding out that it is a lot of people's dirty little secret that they love that show. Yeah. Really? See, that's interesting because, uh, I mean, obviously Seth MacFarlane comes with a degree of baggage if you – you know, don't like admitting that you enjoy Family Guy or American Dad or some of the other stuff that he's been involved in. But see, I feel like he's doing a decent enough job in making the Orville stand on its own that I'm surprised that people are. What is, is it that Seth MacFarlane just kind of overshadows everything or is it something yeah, else? I, well, you know, I think it's I think it is the fact that most people went into it with this with this belief that, hey, I really love star trek and this Mm kind of looks like star trek but i am really i can take or leave seth mcfarlane you know there are times where i don't mind him but then there are times where i feel um aggressively negative towards him and and that's (laughs) i think that's i think i i think that that is the sentiment of a lot of people and they have been pleasantly surprised as you know as you 
you know, you gather around a group of people playing game board games or talking about other things and the Orville comes up. You know, it, it is one of those things where there's this light of recognition where people light up and say, oh, I love that show. And it's like, oh, I love it, too. And and everyone's kind of surprised at the fact that they're the, they're not just the only person that's watching the show and really enjoying it. Sure. Well, Rachel and I are one episode behind, but we'll probably be caught up by the weekend because we've been enjoying it, too. Yeah. I think we've both been pretty pleasantly surprised by it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, for the sure. most part. Well, sure. I mean, I I particularly enjoyed the allegorical bent that it took a couple yes. of weeks ago. But I'll watch the the newest issue with great interest, of course. And uh, so, Zachy, yes, when sir. when you and I weren't busy being the only paid critics that seemed to enjoy Justice League, <laughs> uh, did you manage to continue your broadcast order rewatch? I did. Yeah. And, and, you know, as we talk about Justice League, it's funny because, because as I, I was watching it, I just had a big old grin on my face and I was thinking mm-hmm. of you, uh, Aww. because I was like, I, I feel like I know you well enough where I was like, if no one else, I know Chris is going to love the crap out of this movie. <laughs> so I was like tense when you, you know, when you posted out watching it and then you posted your picture of like being relieved kind <laughs> of, yep. it was over. I was like, oh, whew. I feel like I know you pretty well, you know. I, I think I think you were right. I mean, I I genuinely did not know what to expect going into it, but being and I don't want to spoil it for people who do play. You know, surprisingly enough, I haven't found a lot of crossover between my comics fandom and Star Trek fandom. So for the for the few people who might be planning to watch Justice League this week, and I don't want to spoil it for you, but if you at all love the traditional conception of the aspirationally heroic Superman, hmm. you will probably find quite a bit to all like right. in this movie. And yeah, I you know, I, I said this in my review and uh, this isn't a spoiler, but it took less than a minute for the movie to wow. win me over. Wow. Yeah. And it just like I was, I, it, what happens like, before we even see the title justice league, it had me. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, I was, I was, I that was pretty much like on how, that. Sounds I like don't blame how, you. Uh, Thor got yeah. me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, it's been, it's been a pretty good year for, for comics based cinema. That's for it sure. It really has. Yeah. Although it's looking like the, it's going to open under a hundred million dollars, which is that's shame. pretty disappointing. I mean, it's amazing that they can yeah, forecast and, that uh, on a Friday before, uh, you know, the weekend actually hit. Yeah. I, that too people at work didn't even know it was <laughs> wow. coming out okay that's interesting wow. so well like that's a shame well un- unfortunately yeah it doesn't look like it's getting a lot of love but you know what i mean you just kind of got to roll with it i i can i certainly can and i loved it enough that i'm gonna watch it probably a couple of more times but Zachy, the broadcast yes. rewatch. Oh, let's sorry. Move. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. It's all right. It's all right. Let's move out of the, the, the DC multiverse and move back into the Star Trek multiverse just for we'll, – we'll probably talk up to just – Yeah, I, well, I, I watched Eye of the Beholder oh. from season seven of Next Generation this week, which okay. is th- – that's that's a Troy-centric yes. episode. Um, and and it's, honestly, this is like the first time I've seen it the whole way through since since the 90s. And, uh, yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's, I'm still in this like rough patch of mid season seven episodes that I'm just, I'm trying to get to 
like journeys in and some of the, the, the ones that start picking things up a little bit. But mm-hmm. uh, this is memorable for starting the Troy Wharf Romance, otherwise known as WTF. <laughs> <laughs> what were they thinking? <laughs> yeah, that's, that that's a, a bad idea. It was definitely out of left field. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I watched TNG way out of order. So I saw all good things well before I saw uh, the episode that you watched. And I remember thinking even then, you know, this, this isn't even something that lasted into generations or that gets any reference whatsoever. It's sort of like they did the same thing at the end of Voyager with right. Seven and Chakotay. That just seemed kind of, I mean, it had a little bit of roots in at least one episode, but it still seemed a little strange. Yeah. But Troy and Worf is even more of an odd couple. I think. It was, yeah. It wasn't explicit enough, and my brain just sort of edited it out. And Chris like mentioned, like, "Oh, you know, Troy and Worf got together." I'm like, "What? No, that didn't happen." He's like, "You've seen TNG like four times." I'm like, "No, no, they were just flirting. Yes. Like, don't." They totally so in my in my head canon is it never happened. It was just. Sure. I'm, I'm with you. It was all a dream. <laughs> well, Rachel. Yes. You watched a couple of episodes of Deep Space Nine over Did the last I, couple I of days. I don't remember. Uh-oh. I don't think I did. I think you did. <laughs> you, well, you're going to have to remind me what they were. Mario cause... is frying your brain is what's happening. No, I've been watching The Great British Baking Show. Well, yeah, I know you've been stuff. watching that. But... New season on Netflix. So. Okay, so it's no Star Trek then. the last one. No, no Star Trek since Discovery then? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think no, so. We're going to have to fix that. We're going to have to fix it. Not in this house. No. I'm so sorry, everyone. I, I've, you know. it's a, I, I, I tease her like this all the time. Like one time she insulted uh, Riker's beard, and I just could not take that. Just could not take it. But that's okay. I, I, I didn't insult his beard. I said, your beard is like Riker's beard. And in Chris's mind, that's an insult to Riker's beard. How dare you? It is. Maybe. It totally is. Oh, well. That's okay. Now we're getting a deep, dark look into my own psyche that I didn't intend. But anyway. Don't you dare compare me to Riker. <laughs> he is a god among men. Uh, well, as for me, the only thing that I did, uh, and you know, we had a Cicero and I had alluded to right. Star Trek video games last week in, in the discussion that opened up the show, but I jumped back into Star Trek online because about, I think it was about a year, a year and a half ago, they started making it free to play on consoles instead of just PC because I played the game first on PC and if you've never tried it, it's a pretty interesting game, especially as far as the setting is concerned, because as far as I know, it's like the only interactive media product that takes place post next generation. And it actually mm-hmm. takes place after Romulus is destroyed by the supernova as depicted in the 2009 movie. And, uh, but it takes place in the prime universe. So, uh, you are coming coming to grips with the Romulans who are kind of scattered all over the galaxy because they don't have a home anymore. The Klingons have become aggressive again and dissolved the Kittimer Accords, so the Federation and the Klingons are at war again by the time the game starts. And they've added a bunch of free content updates that's included quite a bit of members of the Star Trek extended family. Like the most recent one brings Captain Geordi LaForge into the mix with LeVar Burton voicing him. 
Tim Russ has played Tuvok in it. Michael Dorn has reprised his role as Worf. Uh, Denise Crosby came back as Sela, and it's just kind of a cool free. It, granted, free to play games, and there's kind of a big debate going on about free to play games right now. If you're familiar with the debate surrounding Star Wars Battlefront Two, but free to play games are inherently designed to get money out of you with microtransactions, but if you go into a free to play game with your eyes wide open and you know what they're going to do, then it's it's fun to play, especially if you're a Star Trek fan and you're interested in stories that are like post nemesis, because those outside of novels are a little few and far between, especially in a video game. And it's still being supported. So it's a it's pretty fun. I've enjoyed being a captain of a starship in Star Trek Online on the Xbox One. But uh why don't we move along? Well, before, oh, before we move along. Yes, yes, yes. I, I've got to make two points. So the first point is I have downloaded Star Trek Online. You have. So I'll, be look, I, I'll be looking forward to playing with you very soon. I uh, echo that sentiment. Uh, number two is last week in our last episode, we talked about Get Out. And I told everyone that before <laughs> the episode aired that you and Rachel who had not seen Get Out to that point, will have seen it because I will make sure that it happens. (laughs) And I know that it has happened. What do you think? That is true. It it most definitely has. And I think I texted you while we were watching it because (laughs) it. the only thing that came to my mind, especially in the moment, was the word transcendental. And I mean, it, it was the kind of movie that at its best really did make you well at least it made me really really disoriented like the kind of reality that i was seeing it starts with its feet firmly planted on the ground and then things just start to get a little weirder and a little more weird you know as time goes on to the point where and i i think one of you guys described it as a twilight zone episode Sure. And that is an extraordinarily apt description. So piggybacking off of that, I mean, I can see why they're going after Jordan Peele for a Twilight Zone relaunch of some kind. Uh, he, he definitely seems to have the skill set, but it also seemed to have a, a, a very profound kind of message about what the... Okay, don't spoil, though. Okay, well, well <laughs> the... the you, you can't ignore the, the message that it tried to convey about racism and the kinds of forms that racism takes. Yeah. And, uh, and that definitely resonated with me. And I'm not going to get into specifics, but the party specifically was the yeah. thing that, that uh, I found both eye-opening and unnerving at the same time. Yeah, I was like legitimately frightened by that movie. Like wow. I was like... like my heart was like beating a little fast during it. I was wow. like, Oh God. And yeah. It was scary. It, it was. And, and it was I mean, great. another good sign of, of just a brilliantly suspenseful pace in the entire thing. But what, what was it that scared you? Um, I don't know. It just so much of it was like gen. It, I, I guess I like, I like horror movies. Right. But like, there's sort of a expectedness to them. Like you kind of know what's going to happen. Predictability. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I, you know, I was fortunate enough not to have ever been spoiled on get out somehow for like 
it's been out yeah, for a year. Same here. And so, like, I did not know what was going to happen, and I was just like legitimately frightened for the main character, Chris. It was like being in a room right. with the walls <laughs> closing in on you. You know, yeah. like that's so. Uh, thank you for facilitating that because that was a, uh, that was a great experience. And I genuinely didn't know what to expect. I, d- I didn't expect any comedy. So right. when I was laughing out loud in a couple of specific spots, that was a very pleasant surprise. Nice. Nice. But, uh, well, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you guys got to watch it and, uh, you guys can't see it, but I am beaming ear to ear. Um, Excellent. Very, very happy that you guys enjoyed it. I thought it was one of the best films this year. Yeah. Zachy, you, you enjoyed it too, didn't you? I did very much so. Yeah. Excellent. And I'm sure that we can find a review written by you. Uh, no, I, did, I actually just saw it recently. So I, I, I didn't oh. do a review. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, well, but it's, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to revisiting it uh, at, as I, you know, start putting together my end of year list. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Well, and who knows? Maybe we'll have to do a Twilight Zone podcast on top of this. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Time That'd be awesome. Yes. That would be cool, actually, like episode by episode. That would be awesome. Oh, mm-hmm. Gosh. We, we'll, we'll have to see what, uh, what the future portends. But anyway, let's move along to a couple of brief news items. So uh, first one co-showrunner Aaron Harberts has gone on the record about Discovery again, this time in the United Kingdom. And in an interview with Metro, which we caught wind of via Trek movie, Harberts defended the original decision by series developer Brian Fuller to create a show set prior to the original series, as opposed to creating a show taking place post-Voyager and post-Star Trek Nemesis. He he basically said that, um, that it was a pretty fruitful time to place a star trek show but he also characterized a uh, a post ds9 voyager nemesis canvas as too broad so this brought to mind a question that i don't think we've ever really discussed on the show at length as of yet uh do you guys support the idea of discovery's time period or rather did you support the idea when you first heard about it or would you have preferred to see a show set after everything we know that's been established. Cicero, why don't we start with you? I didn't care about the setting per se. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was, I, all I cared about was more Star Trek and more Star Trek stories uh, to begin with. But I started to care as I watched the show and only only at, at, at a kind of a surface level. And, and I've kind of articulated it uh, during the course of of this first chapter in, in our in our in our episodes, um, only because it is so jarring. The uniforms uh, that really, that, mm-hmm. that, you know, the differences in the uniforms between this and the TOS and even even uh, even from Enterprise. You know that just mm-hmm. just the those differences, the differences in the Klingons, we really haven't had an explanation of of how or why that is, and and some of the technologies they they use vis a vis the the three D holographic technology uh, that they use to communicate with with people uh, uh, via uh, excuse me via subspace. Uh, these are things mm-hmm. that weren't available in the, in the TOS, didn't exist in the TOS. Uh, uh, universe and and all of a sudden 10 years prior to 
the Enterprise and and you know Kirk's Enterprise. We've got these mm-hmm. we've got these people that have this technology that is far advanced, far more advanced than than uh, you know the, the 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 flagship of the fleet of the Federation. Fleet. Right. So True. that's those are the only things that I care about. But outside of that, you can go. You know, you could have gone here. You could have gone to the future. It really didn't matter. Just tell great stories. Yeah, and and Harbert says that the show, as time goes on, is going to have to reconcile those questions, and that the show is actually going to deal with them. So, I'll be interested as a continuity nut to see exactly how it does that. But Zachy, how about you? With um, compared with the announcement of the time period and where we stand now, how do you feel about what we have compared with what we could have in uncharted waters in the Prime Universe? You know, I. When they announced that it was a prequel, I I sort I didn't I didn't have a negative reaction, but I was kind of like, why why box yourself in? Like I I I call BS a little bit on his explanation. This idea that oh, there's just you know it's too the, there's too much creative freedom is basically what he's saying, right? Right. <laughs> right. Which is which is just goofy to me because the truth of it is that I don't see anything in discovery up to this moment that could not have been tweaked and whatever and set in a quote-unquote present day star trek setting if you will Mm -hmm. and you know not be able to tell the same kind of story i I mean who knows maybe maybe by the end when all is said and done we'll be like oh okay this is why it, it was a prequel but it hasn't you know nothing we've seen thus far has been sort of intrinsic to the canon that says oh this is why like, oh, they're plugging this specific hole in the canon, and that's why it has to be here, right? I don't think there's any been anything, because everything we've seen thus far is a lot of, oh, that's interesting, but how does that fit in? How do we reconcile that? What about right. the uniform? Like, everything is stuff that has no precedent. Mm-hmm. So I I don't know it his his explanation sounds like a lot of a lot of hugger mugger to me. It does you know it does make sense. Yeah, that's sure. me. Rachel, uh, yeah, I agree with uh, with you guys. I I don't really care personally when they said it, but I I really find this explanation to be just hogwash. <laughs> um, and I think the real reason has got to be some sort of economic reason, where like if you said it far in the future, then you kind of have to justify the show concept because the show concept can be anything. So you kind of have to like justify it on its own merits. Whereas if you set it in a, like in between different stories, then you can use characters from the, um, like the original series, like Sarek, like as a, as a hook to -hmm. get people. And that's more economically viable, I think, because they know that Star Trek fans are going to be like, oh, well, what's Spock's adopted sister? <laughs> you know? Right. Um, so, and I think that's a, that's unfortunate because, uh, like Zachy said, that this story could have been adapted definitely to a future time and may have made more sense with the spore drive, right? <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's, uh, that I understand why they had to do it. Part of me wonders if, um, it might be because, well, I don't think it's particularly debatable that the iteration of Star Trek that is most embedded 
in the lexicon of popular culture is the original. I mean, Next Generation probably has bigger fans, but you don't often hear Beam Me Up Scotty out in the wild the same amount that you hear T Earl Grey hot. You know what I mean? So I wonder if uh, having some sort of connective tissue to the original series lends itself to the economic angle, like you said, you know, where if there's a promise of linking up with characters that we know and that the, the public at large generally knows of which Spock is probably the most well-known, then uh, maybe that has something to do with it. I, uh, I, I am a little, I, I remember being, a little disappointed when I first heard about the era. I mean, obviously the original series is my favorite, but I still want to see what happened to Benjamin Sisko. Sure. I was really hoping that when I heard a new Star Trek show was going to be developed, maybe we would get an episode where he, where he reemerges at some point years and years after the fact, but, uh, oh, well, I guess, uh, he can't, can't have everything. I want a solid gold toilet seat too, but I'm probably not going to get that in this lifetime. <laughs> but uh, one other cool note from the same story, Aaron Harbert's also responded to a fan on Twitter who asked a question about a couple of specific alien species and their likelihood of showing up in season two of discovery. And he said that Andorians and Tellarites could, could quite easily appear in season two. And there's not much of a discussion point there. It's just kind of cool to see, those two species again, who've only shown up on the original series and on enterprise. So I would definitely be into that. But, uh, next part, speaking to the UK's telegraph, Jason Isaacs talked in specific terms about what went into his approach to crafting the character of Gabriel Lorca. He said, quote, the whole thing's collaboration, but there are many things I've brought to it that weren't on the page. I made him Southern because he's a military man, and I wasn't aware of any other captains who'd been like that. It was reverse engineered. Lorca had to be unlike any other captain. I wouldn't have played him English as I didn't want to be a pale shadow of Patrick Stewart. I also decided to stand up, so in his little ready room there was a chair, and I said, let's get rid of the chair, because he's a man of action. He doesn't like sitting down. Now, we've had seven episodes with Captain Lorca, and I think we're starting to get a reasonably decent idea of how he fits into. Obviously, there's a lot of questions still left for him. But how do we think he's doing in creating a unique personality in the wider pantheon of Star Trek? Do you guys see Lorca as being in the same class of character as previous captains, even though he's not the lead in this show? Rachel? Well, he's like way shadier <laughs> than all the well, other sure. captains. Yeah. But as far as like dimension is concerned, though, like, um, well, I'm still getting to know him, but yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. I, I think he's a unique character, and I do, I I appreciate all the little things that he that Jason Isaacs is doing here, like the standing up and the man cave full of whatever weapons from everywhere yeah a gorn skeleton and dr moreau yeah yeah just the choice the choices that he's making (laughs) but he's you know that he's got a soft side because he's got a triple in his ready room right maybe you don't know what he's doing (laughs) (laughs) zaki what do you think about how Lorca fits into the wider pantheon do you see him 
as in the same class, let's say, as one of the other captains? Or is do you think he fits in more closely with someone like uh, Commander Riker or a Dr. McCoy, like a high-level supporting character? Do you think he's enough of a command presence that he stands in the same league as the other he, captains? He, he is. I, I think in terms of the complexity uh, and not, not making a comparison in terms of characters, characteristics, but characterization, he's very mm-hmm. similar to Cisco where he's not the, not, I mean, not, not to diminish Kirk and Picard, but not like the standard issue captain that there are, that there is a level, there's texture to him. Mm-hmm. I'm, I think I'm, I've said before, I'm a Lorca fan. I think he's such an interesting character. Yeah. I don't know yet if I admire him, <laughs> but I sure like him. Sure. You know, and, and I, I have to say it's, it's, it says something about just, the, the magnetism, the sort of personal magnetism that Jason Isaacs has, that he has elevated what is ostensibly a supporting character into what feels like almost a co-lead to me. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it reminds me a little bit of like, you know, w- when they first uh, pitched the West Wing, Martin Sheen was going to be like an occasionally seen supporting character. And then after the pilot, they were like, hold on a second. Martin Sheen is like blowing the doors off the joint. We got to have more of him. And it almost feels mm-hmm. like that with Jason Isaacs. Like, I don't know about you. Like, I always want to see more of him because I just think he's doing so much interesting stuff. Um, Do you think that Michael Burnham could go the way of Sam Seaborn and get swept aside in favor of Gabriel Lorca? No, I don't. And, and I think, I think, uh, both characters work because of their dynamic to each other. Like I, I think the show is Michael's journey and yes, I, I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want it to be focused. Like I like the fact that we're seeing Lorca through her eyes. We're seeing just enough of him. Yeah. We're, we're, you know, we know of him, what she knows for the most part mm-hmm. with, with yeah, a few I, exceptions, you know, I, I, I totally agree with that. Cicero, how about you? I think that, uh, Captain Gabriel Lorca is the most complex uh, commander that we have seen in Star Trek. Um, really? Yeah, I think in in terms of in terms of, but but simultaneously the least uh, majestic. Huh. Um, <laughs> if it, you know, uh, just because I'm bad with words, but the, it's if you if you think about uh, Kirk was. Kirk was definitely more of a gunslinger. You know, he was a cowboy. Um, uh, the the uh, Picard was like the stereotypical, like if you look up what the future Federation captain should be, it was uh-huh. Jean-Luc Picard. Uh, mm-hmm. Cisco was definitely, you know, he was complex, but he was exactly what Deep Space Nine needed. Uh, mm-hmm. To lead to lead that diverse group of races, um, and and make sure that 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 ship was successful. Um, but Lorca uh, and Janeway, I just didn't watch Voyager enough to really get a feel of Janeway. But Janeway felt very, you know, she felt very by the book, um, and you know, in the, sure. in my limited experiences with uh, Voyager. But but Lorca is, he's almost like. Um, a a uh, someone who who was given his command during, like field he 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 received field command, and he's just mm-hmm. kind of flying by the seat of his pants, and he's just doing things his way because the mission and not the orders are what's most important. 
Um, and, sure. and, um, I, I mean, I listen, I, Zachy may not sh- be sure if he likes him or, uh, no, no, I like him. him. You I like don't know him. if I admire him. If you admire him, I admire him and I like him, mm-hmm. um, uh, simply because, you know, there's lots of nuance in the world today. Uh, there's going to be nuance in the world, even in the future and, and especially mm-hmm. in the future of conflict. Uh, the way the way that they're seeing it right now uh, in Discovery and the nuance that he brings, the, the unpredictability that he brings to situations. But as we'll talk about uh, in, in the episode, the compassion that's almost surprising, like you never know how he's going to react to a thing. And when he and when he reacts, I think you're always surprised by it. But but sometimes like very pleasantly surprised. So like he acts with Mm -hmm. he's like ruthless and compassionate. And then he's like, you know, by the book, but not by the book. He's like an enigma, you know, wrapped in a riddle. You, I, I, I agree with that. You're actually taking some of the the words out of my mouth in a way, because in, in some ways I feel like Lorca takes from every captain in some aspect of his personality, except for Picard. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at Kirk, you look at Archer, you look at Cisco, you look at Janeway. Right. He takes from each one of those four captains to combine into certain parts of his personality. With with Kirk and Archer, it's like a sense of frontierism, sure. right? Like right. they were the yes. guys yes. that were out exploring where no one has gone before, before anybody else was. And it feels like he understands the dangers of the unknown. Hmm. When it comes to Cisco, he has the battle hardened readiness mm-hmm. because that's something that Cisco always had. He he had enough other aspects of his personality that he wasn't defined by it, but he never backed down from a fight and he was always ready for one. Right. With Janeway, he seems to have inherited her protectiveness for her crew mm-hmm. because you know, she was arguably in the most unique situation of everybody being in an entirely unknown part of the galaxy with no uh, no hope of help coming anytime soon. Uh, they, at the beginning of the show, they started on what they thought would be a 70-year journey back home through an entirely unexplored quadrant of the galaxy. And she felt extraordinarily protective of her crew and went to sometimes extreme lengths in order to protect them. And kind of what you alluded to, that compassion element, he seems to exhibit at least in doses. And that seems very Janeway-like to me. But either way, even if I might identify some of these specific personality traits with other Star Trek captains, he still combines to form an entirely unique whole. His perspective is something that is entirely, for lack of a better term, alien. Right. In, in the pantheon of captains, but yes, I absolutely think that he's in that league as well. Yeah. But uh, why don't we move along into the actual episode discussion? The, the uh, chapter one mid season finale of star Trek discovery into the forest. I go. So the episode begins immediately after the conclusion of the last episode. Captain Lorca is ordered by Starfleet Command to flee Pavo, the uh, the planet that the spore. Did we decide if it were spores or if it was another kind of organic life? 
Either way, uh, ordered to flee Pavo before the Klingons arrive. And seemingly being conciliatory to that order, he then directly disobeys it in order to try and find some way to attack the Klingons and protect the Pavians. Uh, and also to try and protect Starfleet's chances of having some kind of tactical advantage against the Klingons by detecting the cloaked ships. And this is kind of where it seems like the compassion might come into play, but it's also tempered by the fact that he knows he's on the brink of a tactical discovery and something that will give him and the Federation an advantage on the battlefield against the Klingons. But he also see this is the first time where he struck me as legitimately interested in defending a defenseless race because it's he even says that to the admiral that he's arguing right. with. Um, do you guys think that Lorca's desire to remain at Pavo was conditional upon that possible tactical advantage, or is he exhibiting something more slightly familiar when it comes to Starfleet ideology, Zaki? You know, I mean, that's the thing with Lorca is you never know entirely what's what's going on underneath the hood but i mean i'd like to think that you don't get to be a starfleet captain without having that that the no that you know the, that selflessness sort of ingrained into you so i'd like to believe that it's it's his his better angels uh, that have uh, dictated this he's being sort of classically uh you know star trek captain heroic mm-hmm. sure rachel um, I think that he felt bad for the Pavins, mm-hmm. but I, yeah, like Zachy said, I don't really know. I don't really know what's going on in that crazy brain. It's crazy. So nine episodes in, we still don't know what the hell is in this guy's head, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Cicero? Uh, Gabriel Loca is the defender of the defenseless. Um... <laughs> <laughs> we 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 you know i mean but we saw that we saw that earlier uh when they uh you know spore drive jumped onto that planet to save the miners who were you know right it just you you weren't sure exactly what they were going to do but but Lorca made a decision that they were going to at all cost save save those people because they needed they needed help and that's you know that's something you don't know what's in his head, but that is something that I think you can count on every time is if there are, there is someone in need um, and they've shown themselves to be at least somewhat peace loving, or they've been, they were minding their own business. You know, that Lorca and the discovery will come to their aid in their time of need. You can take that to the bank. Mm. <laughs> We got to get a uh, painting of him up so we can put it in your place. I think is heroic Lorca standing ready to defend the defenseless. Uh, I'll, I'll get a copy for All myself right, right too. On, right on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so moving along in the plot, uh, Michael Burnham, Ash Tyler and Saru devise a plan while they're disobeying orders because the orders were for discovery to jump back to a star base Instead, Lorca sets a course to the starbase at warp five to travel in conventional ways and at a relatively slow speed. So while they are in transit to the starbase, he wants the crew to come up with some way to try and help the Pavins and detect the cloak. So Burnham, Tyler, and Saru devise a plan to detect the cloak that involves a boarding party and getting sensors on board the ship of the dead 
along with excessive use of the spore drive. And Lorca goes directly to Lieutenant Paul Stamets uh, and asks him to undertake 133 micro jumps using the spore drive that would probably put a pretty intense amount of pressure on his nervous system. Uh, but he also gives him the promise by showing him a map that he's been tabulating of possible exploration of alternate universes that are uh, traversable on the mycelial network after the war. They need to finish the war first and then they can go universe hopping is basically what he said. So Kolber preps Stamets for those jumps until he accidentally lets slip in engineering the secret of his side effects to the doctor, something that she and Stamets talked about in the mess hall last week. Uh, now Dr. Kolber knows that something is more drastically affecting uh, Stamets. So the first thing that just jumped right out at me that I loved this episode for is that this is probably the most service that we've seen yet given to Stamets and Kolber's relationship. And even if groovy Stamets isn't around much right now, you know, not have, and I think I speculated about this back when we did the, uh, the third episode of discovery, the third episode of the show. When, after we had watched it, that some kind of relationship would give this guy a human angle. And I really think it absolutely does. The, the seeing the relationship between he and Dr. Kolber humanizes him to a point where it gives him a very solid point of identification. How do you guys feel about the way that their relationship has been explored thus far? Because it seems in a in in a, a really refreshing kind of way that this is one of the the bigger elements of character interaction that we've seen in a Star Trek show this early that's so well defined. What do you think, Rachel? Um I I I like their relationship because it it makes you understand that when Stamets is putting his life at risk like what he's putting at risk mm -hmm. you know like he he has people who care about him and I think that you know like with anybody you know that abstractly but they're making that explicit because like his partner is there mm -hmm. right um the other thing that I really liked this episode was that he and Dr. Colbert got to kiss passionately yeah which I don't think you get to see a lot of gay couples kissing on TV mm -hmm. um, really, you know, like passionately and, and romantically uh, in the way that you see. It was happy. Couples. I mean, they were happy to see each other. That's what but people do. No, it was when they they're were departing. Yeah, like, they're about to leave. Leaving. Yeah, they were about to leave. Oh, was that, oh. Yeah, it was at the end. Okay. <laughs> it was a goodbye. It was a goodbye kiss. Yeah, well, there you go. Kiss. But yeah, like passion. I just... Yeah. It's, it's something that I, I notice is that a lot of times when they have gay couples kiss, it's kind of like, you know, like a peck. And that's not really how people kiss. It felt authentic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Zachy, how about you? I, I think it's it's interesting that uh, the, the relationship between Stamets and Culber is one of the few continuing uh, romantic relationships we've seen in this entire franchise. I mean... Yeah. Other than like like Riker and Troy was never really right. a thing. Uh, I th I can think of Worf and Dax. Is, mm -hmm. is it like in terms of of regulars? You know what I mean. We had Cisco and 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 uh, Cassidy, I guess. But uh, right. two crew members together, it's it's pretty slim pickings. And so I I appreciate that it's 
you know, the, 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 the mere sort of the normalcy of it, like, yeah, they're together. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not a thing. Uh, I like, I like that. I like the normalness of it because that's exactly the, the, what the future of Star Trek is about, you know? Um, and, and I think, you know, that's, that's something that this franchise is doing in an unexpected way. Well, irrespective of the fact they're, they're a same-sex couple. It's just they're a couple that cares for each other. And that's something anybody should be able to relate to, whether they are same-sex or not. Yeah, absolutely. Cicero? I think that uh, the even from the very first time that you saw them on the screen together, uh, you you were able to, if you were paying attention, you were able to read that there was either a relationship brewing or a relationship that already existed there, that there was, Mm -hmm. there was a, um, there was the tension of lovers, um, in, in, in that very first examination of Stamets from Colbert. Um, and, uh, the fact that you, you've been able to watch that blossom in a very real natural way, as, as Zachy kind of alluded to for, for almost really the first time, uh, on Star Trek and especially as as crew members as people that are you know in the middle of uh, a very stressful situation uh, where where you know one of the members of 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 this relationship is actively putting themselves in unknown harm's way you know I mean w- mm-hmm. nobody understands um, the the uh, the ramifications of of the things that uh, that Stamets is doing so um it's it's really been remarkable to kind of watch that relationship and and watch the 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 level of care between the two of them uh cobra obviously trying to protect stamets from hurting himself because he knows he's heroic and and you know that he cares for the crew and and what they're doing so much and then stamets of course because he cares for the crew and the, and the the people within the crew that matter the most to him He's willing to put himself on the line um, to to, you know, to win the day. So, um, you know, watching all of that stuff is is really beautiful and natural, uh, which is mm-hmm. which is an amazing thing. And I really appreciate that they're doing one thing that I think that you kind of glossed over was describing talking about Lorca with with the map that he was showing Stamets. And I think that was another way for Stamets to kind of show his compassion that 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 as we're surprised by Stamets uh, as viewers, the crew is surprised by Stamets. And, and I mean, not Stamets, as, uh, as we're surprised by Lorca, uh, you know, as viewers, the crew is surprised by Lorca, by you know, some of the things that he does. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and we got to see that with Stamets and, and, you know, the fact that Lorca by himself was, was mapping all of, all of the jumps that, that Stamets was making in the sport drive. And, uh, yeah. And Stamets even said to him, I didn't know you cared. Right. Right. And, and I think he like, you know, I don't think that was sarcasm. I think that was like a genuine, genuine emotion that, that he was, uh, that he was espousing to, to Lorca. Um, but here's the, here's the thing though. Right. But because it's Lorca, yeah, was it really <laughs> compassion, and that's that is the question, and that's what makes him so brilliant, and that's why I love him so much. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like we we we're not entirely sure if uh, 
Rachel's doing narrow eyes, the suspicious. <laughs> that was very suspicious of the poor guy. Like, look, I made this map. Like, I'm gonna go home to my home universe. Like, Captain, I didn't know you cared. And then in his own head, he's putting his fingers together like Mr. Burns and going, "Excellent." You know, I mean, we we don't totally know what what's in his head, but you're right. I mean, at least as far as master of uh, of perception, if perception is reality on the starship discovery, then captain Lorca is the master of it. Yes, definitely. Yes. Well, uh, piggybacking though, off of the relationship between Stamets and Colbert, uh, last week we saw that Stamets expressed serious concern to, to cadet Tilly about the idea of bringing Colbert in on the news of the side effects of the spore drive and how it's affecting his place in time in space time. As far as we know, now that Colbert knows, and granted, we don't know how much he knows, but he's a smart guy, so I'm sure he's going to find out. Do you think he'll be able to come out of the situation unscathed? Rachel? Um, well, I watched the next time on, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> well, that's, I, mean, I know he's got cloudy eyes for a while. No, I mean, I mean, Colbert. Oh, do you know? If, do you okay. think Colbert is going to be able to come out of this unscathed? Now that he knows, with Stamets expressing the fact that he doesn't want to endanger Colbert's career in Starfleet, right? And he doesn't want to endanger him physically. Obviously, you think his involvement in the spore drive, because uh, and the thing that really makes me ask this question: Wilson Cruz is listed as a guest star. Yeah, but I I don't wow. like there might be like regulations because of like how much he's in the episodes that he can't be. Maybe, like a, but we that's the thing we don't know. Um, I well, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't be unscathed. But I don't know, like they could you know kill off any character at any time. Um, I don't think he did anything wrong. I mean, it was like that one hundred thirty three jumps were successful, right? So they made this like huge technological leap forward in terms of being able to detect the cloaks so i mean it seems like starfleet is willing to overlook transgressions as long as you're successful because they were going to give Lorca a medal for you know disobeying up his ship for disobeying direct orders and Um, uh well and they brought michael on board right I mean, yeah. she was supposed to go to prison. <laughs> right, right. I guess that yeah, at this point in Starfleet, maybe they're... the discovery just, <laughs> just they do what they want. Right. Yeah. What do you guys think? I mean, I this show has put me on the defensive when it comes to liking characters too much. I guess, and even though she wasn't particularly likable, the death of Commander Landry, I think, is what has made my my own uh threat ganglia come out a little bit especially when it comes to characters that i like but with colbert becoming involved he seems like he has enough of a sense of love and potentially a sense of uh desire to protect paul paul that i just kind of wonder is this is this going towards a cliff maybe i don't know am i crazy zaki I think anything is possible. I mean, I, you know, definitely, uh, as you mentioned, him being listed as, as a guest star as opposed to a regular, that's something that, that certainly makes him more, um, you know, expendable than, than, you know, Stamets, for example. So I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's off the table. No. Yeah. 
Cicero, how about you? Any any thoughts? Well, I, I mean, obviously, I think that just from uh, a character's perspective, Colbert is going to feel some level of guilt if uh, Stamets, you know, Stamets obviously he came out of he came out of that that final that hundred and thirty fourth jump, and why why one hundred and thirty three jumps? Um, but, but, but that, you know, that 134th jump, I'm just doing it. I'm doing it one last time. That's the kiss of death. I'm doing it one last time and then I'm done. Um, and you know, he came out of that definitely changed, uh, changed even more so than he had been, you know, changed in all of the previous jumps that he had you know done prior to that. I think mm-hmm. that there's going to be some level, especially now that Cobra can't plead ignorance to, uh, and, and maybe he doesn't know the entire depth of, uh, you know, the maladies that that Stamets is, has faced as a result of using the spore drive. Um, but he can't plead ignorance to knowing that it has affected him negatively. And the That's fact true. that, the you know, the man that he loves is is now incapacitated in some way on his watch um, is is definitely something that's going to affect him. Um uh, you know, negatively, emotionally, um, going sure. forward, and and what that what form that takes, will you know? I guess we'll have to have to wait and see. Definitely. Well, something I couldn't help but thinking about uh, Lorca, because I'm sure that you know all of us have seen varying theories about exactly what Captain Lorca's deal is and where he might come from. And what he's exactly trying to do. And one of the prevailing fan theories, it seems like it's getting a reasonable amount of play just because of his more militaristic style and compared to some other Star Trek captains, is that perhaps Gabriel Lorca, at least as we know him, is indigenous to the Mirror Universe as opposed to the uh, the regular Prime Universe. And the thing that kind of popped into my head when he was talking to Stamets in the Ready Room, when he was talking about we've actually mapped the ability to possibly go to alternate universes. This is where our exploration can take us. Just a little germ of a thought creeped into my brain and I got a little conspiratorial and I was thinking, is he trying to find a way home? Is that maybe what's going like, could this lend some credence to the, to the mirror universe theory? And obviously, you know, we're going to talk about the end of the episode when we get to the end of the episode, but did anybody else have that thought? Is this theory something that you put any stock in whatsoever? Or is this something that you can swipe to the side? Zachy? I, I don't think, I mean, I, I think that saying, saying that Lorca is from the mirror universe basically undermines the complexity that the fact that we're having all these conversations, like, I don't know what's his deal. Like, like to me, if we just hand wave all that and say, Oh, he's a refugee from the mirror universe. Like that doesn't feel like a narrative choice that would make sense in, in the milieu of this show. Sure. You know, weirdly like this is like a quote unquote, more grounded star Trek. Mm -hmm. That makes it, you know, so even though I know that, that, you know, they've said there's going to be a mirror universe, you know, jaunt coming up in some capacity, I think, I think what I'm assuming is that it's going to be a take on the mirror universe that's very different from, you know, the, what we got in both Enterprise and like the original series. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, the theory of infinite, who knows? Maybe the mirror universe we'll see is like a mirror, mirror universe. Mirror, mirror, like, mirror. Yeah. Mirror, mirror. There's, <laughs> there's plenty of possibilities, but Cicero, how about you? Do you feel like there's any stock in that theory or do you feel similarly to Zach? Well, I didn't, uh, I didn't put any stock into that theory. It never even crept into my head until, until you mentioned it uh, maybe a few episodes ago. Um, and then I started thinking about it. Then I dismissed it because he has no goatee. So <laughs> forget about it. Um, Case closed. Right, right. Exactly. So I, I think that that you present a very, very compelling argument. But I think that Zaki presents an argument that I that I want to be true because of the brilliance of the performance and the complexity of of the the characterization of of Captain Lorca. Um, and, and sure. you know, a mirror universe would kind of destroy some of that. Sure. I can absolutely see that. Rachel. All right. So I think that theory is super tinfoil-y, <laughs> but I like, I like tinfoil. So, all right. She chews on it from time to time. Right on. <laughs> so, um, I don't think he's evil enough to be from the mirror universe. So if he is, he's learned to blend in really well. Um, however, I think that uh, maybe he knows about the mirror universe and he's into it. <laughs> and he wants to get, he's he wants to it. check it out. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is fetish. He's, he's a fan of the, I don't know. Like, I feel like he, he, some, maybe something adjacent to the mirror universe. Like he, he went there one time and, you know, he wants to go back and, you know, check it out. I don't know. You know, conceivably that kind of brings something up too, is for like, if he is maybe trying to, he's always looking for the tactical advantage. Right. And if he knows of some, the presence of some kind of weapon in the mirror universe that he could maybe bring back and use against the Klingons because, okay, now really getting into the weeds, <laughs> we know that a ship that was 100 years more advanced than anything the mirror universe had showed up in the 2150s during Enterprise. A Constitution-class ship from the Prime Universe ended up in the mirror universe of the past right. And if there's any uh, engineering capability whatsoever in the Terran Empire, if they were able to reverse engineer a Constitution class ship, then who knows how advanced a mirror universe could be as far as weaponry is concerned and engines are concerned, right? right. I really don't think the show is going to get that deep into it. <laughs> I would love it if it did, but I just I don't see it happening anytime That's... soon. But I think I but bottom bottom line right now as it stands, I think. Uh, you guys have convinced me that maybe it's that he's probably not from there, but if he wants to get there, Rachel, you bring up a good point. Doesn't necessarily disqualify it. <laughs> let's, let's let's you guys have anything else to add. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move along with the plot then. So when the Klingons finally arrive at Pavo, Tyler and Burnham transport to the Klingon ship and plant sensors that will help create an algorithm for detecting the cloaked ships. On board, they find Admiral Cornwell alive, who is hidden with Laurel, but seeing the Klingon who had him captive sends Tyler into shock due to apparent PTSD stemming from her torturing and raping him. So 
this to me was the holy shit moment of this episode. I don't know about you guys, but it was it was legitimately shocking. I mean, more than just the use of the f bomb in a previous episode, more than the decidedly more brutal visions of violence that we've seen. That stuff's fine, but for some reason, this I guess the cerebral nature of it, I was just not expecting. I think you saw flashes of Vox face in there, but the the rather. Yeah, yeah, it seemed like it. But the rather graphic depictions of what Tyler at least thinks he went through. I mean, you saw saw blades, you saw him screaming, you saw plastic over his face, he's writhing. I mean, maybe it was a surgery, but it didn't necessarily have to have been a surgery. But uh, how did you guys interpret everything that you saw in Tyler's flash? Obviously, it happened very quickly, but it really felt like the episode came to a head at this moment. And I was legitimately emotionally affected by what I was seeing, but how did you interpret it, Rachel? Well, I was confused as heck (laughs) because I I did not know, I guess, what to make of it. But, you know, like one of the things that had always kind of been in the back of my mind that it was like, all right, he's Vok, he's a Klingon in disguise. Was that like, he doesn't, he's, you know, he said that he was on this Klingon vessel and he was being tortured and raped. And, like, he doesn't seem to be like, oh, I don't want to go to the Klingon vessel. Like, I don't know. I just think that someone who's been through that, you know, might have some issues with going just going back to the Klingon <laughs> vessel. Um, and, and in general, like, he seemed like he was just, you know, just fine. But then on the other hand, I was like, well, uh, you know, TV has this trope where if, like, women go through a traumatic experience they're broken forever and if men go through a traumatic experience they're fine the next episode Mm -hmm. so it's like maybe they're just sort of doing that and they're just you know whatever he's fine i i i I had been thinking about this for a while like why is he so okay is it because he is vok is it because of the writing like what's going on with that and so i liked that he wasn't okay um i think that was a a really interesting part of his character if he is indeed ash tyler which i'm starting to think that he at least thinks he is Mm -hmm. for sure um but then also you were really excited that this was we're seeing the surgery um the horrible surgery to become a human and that's gonna kind of look like that too so i don't Mm -hmm. know i just i'm confused (laughs) Cicero. And intrigued. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, you, you know, so uh, I was fully under the the Valk is Tyler uh, conspiracy theory, like you know, full tilt. Um, when when mm-hmm. when uh, Tyler saw Laurel for the very first time, I was like, okay, you know, what is he gonna do? You know, is he gonna play yeah. it off? Blah blah blah. But the but the the sense of trauma the sense of of fear the you know the fact that he retreated to this terrible place really led credence to rachel's theory that he is a sleeper agent that he doesn't even realize that he's Volk. like i still believe he's Volk, mm-hmm. but but the fact that i don't think that tyler knows that he's Volk. um and and mm-hmm. that that was weird um that was part of the holy shit moment for me was like oh wait a minute i don't know what to think about this i'm not sure how you know he's not reacting the way that i expected that he was going to react in fact he is reacting in a way that's way too real 
Um, you know, mm-hmm. so it was it was very very weird to me. Um, the other thing is that I, uh, if there is a critique that I have to make about this show is, and maybe it's just you know like maybe I shouldn't even make this critique, but it's like there is there is a gratuitous nature um, to the show because it's it's on you know it's not on broadcast television uh so you know so not only Mm -hmm. did we get curse words not only did we get uh visceral gratuitous violence uh earlier on in the season and actually even in in uh this episode but we also saw for the very first time topless klingons um which you know that was like oh well okay i mean it's a thing like sure you know like if if this was an hbo show and it wasn't star trek then i would be you know like i wouldn't think anything of it so it's you know it's my star trek prudishness that's uh you know (laughs) it's keeping me from understanding (laughs) it in a in a real way so uh you think that could have been the intention though i think so i think so i I, you know kudos to them for for saying hey look you know, I mean, and they've done that. They've been really successful, I think, throughout the season and saying like, hey, you guys think Star Trek is this, but Star Trek mm-hmm. is what we say it is. And and for now, on this, you know, on this platform, Star Trek is going to be this thing for adults. This ain't your grandpa's right. Star and Trek. it ain't your it ain't your son your son or daughter's Star Trek either. That's what they're saying. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, on that note, Zachy, yeah, I, I, I'm even more dug in. What we were seeing was aspects of the transformation, and it were it's meant to imply that we were seeing him being tortured. But what we were actually seeing was some process by which he went from being a Klingon to this guy, and he has no. I mean, he truly believes he's Ash Tyler, but he he's a damn dirty Klingon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think Laurel being like soon, right, soon, yes, yes, it was, right, yes. you know, that was yeah. it. Like, well, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but didn't she even specifically say, "I won't let them right, hurt yes. you"? Yeah, yeah, yes. no. I mean, but, you could interpret right. that if if you got all the blinders up, you could interpret that as saying, she, you know, you were in my care and I have ownership right. over you right. now. Like, she's got, she has a level of, yeah, she has a level of affection for, for. Ash Tyler or that that body form, whatever, whoever that life form is, right. she has a level of affection for mm-hmm. him. And uh, you know, yeah, who that person is 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 still up for debate. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, I I was and you know I was certainly off put as well by um, by the the relatively graphic depictions of what he went through. But I was showing Rachel. Uh, I think it was it was like a day before the yeah, show. It was I think like eerily close. To yeah, when we watched. It. So, and I think I've mentioned this on the show before too. But there was a comic book miniseries that came out, I think, in two thousand eight, uh, from IDW called Star Trek Klingons: Blood Will Tell, and it gives a Klingon perspective on a couple of different uh, Star Trek episodes. There's uh, one issue I think that focuses on Chancellor Gorkon, which I really like, but there was also one that focused on a guy that we've only ever really known as Arne Darvin from the trouble right. with tribbles. And, uh, I showed Rachel the page where he undergoes his surgery to become human and his head is cut oh, open wow. and his ridges are literally sanded down before his head is stapled back together. And he's got ridges on his spine that are similarly removed. 
his hair is cut off and his skin it looks like it's bleached with a kind of acid that burns him and he's screaming in agony but the aesthetics of that page looked a little similar to what we saw ash yeah, tyler go it through. looked like it could have been a storyboard wow. yeah the, it was like very similar and and i mean the just the brutality of that page stuck with me now for almost mm. 10 years and it seemed very familiar so take that for what it's worth i'm sure you can find a trade paperback of star trek klingon's blood will tell out there somewhere it's absolutely a great is, series is that john reading. byrne who did that no, it was before Byrne came on board. I think it was David Messina oh, oh, okay, who's okay. been writing a significant amount of the Star Trek comics over at IDW for most of the time they've had the license, which is since He's 2007. He's been doing the, the Kelvin stories too, right? Hasn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great series too. It they is. did a, just an ongoing Star Trek series for 60 issues. And now there's one running called Star Trek Boldly Go that takes place after Star Trek Beyond. That's a great And it's series, also, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. But, uh, well, let's move on. So... In order to effectively combat the vastly larger and more powerful ship of the dead, Lorca directs Stamus to make those 133 micro jumps using the spore drive to get the uh, the three-dimensional perspective of the ship and to uh, feed the sensors as much as they need to be. While Burnham leaves behind Tyler with Admiral Cornwell and Laurel, she distracts Cole aboard the ship by challenging him to a fight. Michael is further emboldened to defeat the Klingon when she sees that he possesses in his hand the badge of Captain Filippo Giorgio. And uh, I have to say, you know, I had a very distinct feeling that I've only ever really gotten from like comic book movies, sometimes professional wrestling matches when I watched it as a kid. It's like the battle is joined. And obviously the show hasn't really been hyping up a rivalry specifically between Michael and call, but it's sort of like they were the proxies in this instance for the Federation and the Klingons and coming together for this fight was pretty cool. I mean, seeing them, seeing them talk first uh, and then seeing them actually go at it, seeing Michael hold her own as well as she does, which is awesome. And seeing Cole, I think they even pulled out, was it McCleth's that they used in the fight? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was. Um, but they were almost like direct representatives for us in the war uh, as they went to battle here. And I was surprisingly affected too by seeing Captain Giorgio's name on that badge. I was not expecting that. I was reasonably sure it was hers before we saw her name, but seeing her name definitely did something. But how do you guys feel about this conflict specifically between these two characters? Did you, did you learn enough? Obviously we know about Michael, but did you learn enough about Cole to feel a sense of, uh, I guess, investment in this fight. Zachy, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I, I think that uh, there was, I don't know. I mean, it, it definitely felt like a culmination. It felt like we had been building up to this in a way that, uh, you know, there, there was, it, it felt like a resolution in some ways, certainly for her uh, arc thus far, mm-hmm. uh, you know, get, getting the thing back. That was, that felt, that felt like an earned moment. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I I agree. Rachel. So Chuck's expertise has this interesting video about how Star Trek is kind of like epic poetry, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like this like single combatants as a storytelling device is old and very effective. Mm-hmm. And it it was used very well here. Like it's, you know, a great human storytelling trope 
for a reason. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of that kind of goes back because you're not the biggest fan of Marvel Studios movies. Like the last couple of Avengers movies have had giant faceless armies for them to fight, and you seem to kind of check out when those happen. So yeah, seeing like actual one on one having a champion. Well, and it emphasized the honor yes. too, right? I mean. That's something that you and I both looked at each other while we were watching this and saying, hey, these Klingons are kind of recognizable again. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Because they were all excited about the fight. Yeah. And it was like, that's right. a Klingon. <laughs> you know? Like, they're into it. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Cicero? Yeah. I, um, so the one thing, I was I was really happy for the fight. And, you know, and it was one of those things where uh, you, you were ready for call to be either taken down a peg or for them to at least battle um and and for uh for michael burnham to to have this opportunity to exercise her demons um Mm -hmm. you know like you know we saw earlier in the season where uh captain georgia had left her the one piece of you know treasured family heirloom uh in the in the form of the telescope uh and and you know michael didn't feel like she deserved it and and gave it to saru this is the this is the heirloom from philippa georgiao that she deserves that yes. she has earned um and and to see her have the chance to fight for it was great um i never really felt like logically speaking i didn't feel like she was ever in danger um mm-hmm. you know i was never worried for her safety uh, in a real way, you know, maybe she would be wounded or something to that effect, but I didn't think that she would ever be mortally wounded um, going mm-hmm. into going into that fight. But I, but I desperately wanted to see that. Now, does that come from like an external factor, like the fact that you know Sonequa Martin Green leads the show, or did it come from the fact that she was just killing time? Um, I, I think more of the former and less of the latter. Um, you know, it's just, yeah, you know, as, as a viewer of the show and, and kind of stepping away and not being immersed in it, um, you know, this feeling that you're not going to kill, you're not going to kill your lead, uh, Mm -hmm. in, in the season finale and, you know, halfway through the winter season finale. So, I mean, that's just not, not going to, not going to happen. So, you know, I wasn't worried about that. Um, but I wasn't sure exactly if she was going to get the better of him, but I knew that she was definitely driven to get those dog tags, which I, you know, I didn't even realize that Starfleet had dog tags, you know? Mm -hmm. So like the fact that she was going to be able to get uh, that badge and that dog tag for, uh, for her mentor and friend um, really meant a lot. It, you know, obviously meant a lot to her and it meant a lot to me as a viewer to watch her, actually get it before uh before leaving yeah and that's a really good thematic connection that you make uh about the fact that he or that uh you know cole has this he has this totem that is the last real remnant of this woman that michael adored and looked up to so much and that's what the fight was for that's a that's a that's a very good observation Zachy, I wanted to ask you specifically because this was a point in the episode where we finally get to see the Universal Translator doing its job. We got to see Klingons actually speak English, we see, so it functions in the same way that we've seen it in other shows where that piece of technology was highlighted. But also, you know, as Rachel and I alluded to a little bit earlier, the Klingons felt, at least to us anyway, a little more familiar and 
obviously you've been historically disengaged with a lot of the Klingon elements of the last few episodes whenever they've come up. So how did this episode's Klingon involvement come at you considering uh, how you felt about it in the past? And did you find those recognizable elements to be satisfactory or was this something that you could have taken or left? Oh, it, it, it was, I mean, I, it was just, it's about damn time. Once we actually, Mm -hmm. like you hear a Klingon (laughs) talk and it doesn't sound like he's coughing up a hairball. I'm like, (laughs) finally, you know, uh, I still, I still question the, the efficacy of, you know, having to sit through eight episodes of just, just grunting and, 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 uh, you know, uh, it just having to do this, the, the, having to put up with all this noise, you know? Uh, yeah. I, you know, it, it was nice. I, I, I feel like if, if, if the, if the goal was to make the Klingons feel very alien to us and make thus make this moment where they're speaking, feel like more of a revelation, I would buy that more if canonically we haven't already dealt with the Klingons. Sure. Right. Like this is not right, this right. is not the first meeting between uh, you know the, the Federation and Klingons. Like right. if if it was a true first contact story, I I would have been more on board for this. In in the context of Discovery, it just felt like kind of like whatever you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and and I agree. Uh, I hope that you know. Obviously, we're not done with the Klingons yet. We're still in Chapter One by the time the show is going to make its return. And oh, are, I hope are they we? decide. Are, to... I thought we were. I thought we were at the end of Chapter One, and we're going into Chapter Two now. Oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, Season oh, One. Okay. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you for oh, catching yeah, that. No we're still in Season One. So the war, the war is going to extend through through the end of season one. So I hope they lean on uh, a little bit more efficiency. Now that we've seen Klingons speak English and we know that they're not speaking English, maybe they can uh, they can lose the subtitles. But who knows? I mean, it's just a functional thing uh, overall. But hopefully, we'll we'll see how that how that shakes out. I, but I uh, felt I felt like. The Klingons, when they spoke English, were more emotive than yeah, than they, they than they had been when they were speaking Klingon. And I, you know, I don't know what where that comes from. You know, I don't know if it's because they were actually speaking my native tongue that it that it made it made it feel more emotive, or was it that the actors were speaking their native tongue and they understood what it was that they were actually saying at the moment they were saying it, that it's probably both. If like, if I had to guess, I think that it's both only because, well, I'm sure you guys have have at least caught clips of shows that aren't in a language that you speak. I mean, actors who speak in other languages, since we're not accustomed to the tone that goes with the specific verbiage, Sometimes it can get, I mean, the word lost in translation, is it's a valid phrase for a reason. Like it's not a direct one-to-one carryover. And I'm sure that that moves into the ability to perform a line in a specific way. But like, you know, we were speculating a couple of weeks ago and Rachel, you brought it up specifically about what, maybe it's the makeup that's getting in the way of communicating what's really happening with the Klingons. And maybe it was just the language. Right. You know? Yeah, well, it was probably a combination of both, and sure, I I tend to favor that the actors were probably so concerned with having to say these lines in a language that they don't speak, and it's difficult 
for English speakers to pronounce. Yeah. Um, Nobody speaks it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's, it's what, noises are even similar what, to English. So, like, what humans are <laughs> You know, I heard a while ago, and I have no idea if this is true or not, but the syntax of Klingon is well-developed enough. that like, it, If you raised a child speaking Klingon, they can grow up speaking fluently Klingon. And it's it's such a well-developed syntax that if necessary the united nations could employ a klingon translator like wow. that's that that's how you know that you have made something that just is totally like paramount cbs in some form or fashion might own the klingon language to a degree but they don't really own it if it is going to have a life of its own like that i mean they could not have anticipated that but uh Let's let's move along with the plot, unless you guys have anything to add. Uh, so the jumps the jumps are completed, though not without significant trauma to Paul Stamets. When the algorithm is calculated, Burnham, Tyler, and Laurel, the last of whom jumps on the dematerializing Tyler at the last minute, apparently making good on her expressed desire to defect to the Federation, they're all transported back to the Discovery. While the Klingon ship, along with Call and his followers, taken from Vakan to Kuvma, is destroyed by Discovery with their newly acquired tactical advantage. And holy hell did this surprise me. Uh, maybe it shouldn't have. I don't know. I mean, maybe I just didn't see things coming from far enough away. But I did not expect Call to die in this episode, basically. I, I thought he would be an antagonist that we would see... Uh, paired up again with Valk in some fashion, but I did not really expect him to die. But I think it also kind of goes back to uh, the conversation that we saw Laurel have the last time we saw Valk in the Shenzhou's ready room. You know, you have to sacrifice everything. So maybe they were planning to take the ship out and all of the people on it, even back then. Maybe that kind of comes into play. But did you guys expect call to die did you expect this ship to go down in this episode obviously things were going to come to a head just because we're in a mid-season finale but how did this specific moment strike you did you feel like this was oh yeah this is totally what should have happened or did it surprise you as much as it surprised me uh zaki please you know i i didn't see it coming but i i wasn't like I wasn't shocked, but it, it wasn't something I, I, I mean, I think I'm like you, I assumed that Cole would be sort of more of a long running big bad. Uh, but I think what this does is sort of open up the narrative more in terms of like, well, what is the Klingon hierarchy here? Like who is pulling the strings? I think, I think that's uh, almost more interesting than sort of seeing Cole screaming in the uh, scheming, excuse me, scheming and screaming in the background Every couple episodes, and you're like, "All right, thirty seconds of grunting." <laughs> um, so, so it was it, it wasn't a, a surprise, but uh, I was it wasn't like um, it 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 to me made me more intrigued by what's going to come next. It didn't come out of left field for you, not, not necessarily. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure, Cicero. Yeah, I you know when when the ship was the ship of the dead was blowing up. The only thing that I could think of was the ending of Galaxy Quest. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the the 
if you guys remember the the big bad ship in in Galaxy Quest was uh, destroyed in much the, kind of the same way the the bridge of the ship and the nose of the ship were starting to explode and all mm-hmm. of the you know all of the characters were you know being enveloped by the by the fire um but it so in Galaxy Quest it, you know spoiler alert for Galaxy Quest the the main villain beams himself off of the ship onto the Galaxy Quest ship right at the last moment before the ship explodes and that was the other thing that I thought about as well <laughs> that that because because Call had been such a thorn in the side of uh, Volk and Lorel that I it feels somewhat anticlimactic to me. Sure. That that he's just gone this way. That he mm-hmm. he didn't die by someone's hand, but he just died as as you know as a result of being on the ship. And there hasn't been a character of of worth or note in the ship on the show so far that has died in that way. Um, so, so I think it would be, it would be, it would be unprecedented, uh, you know, in, in a show that's only nine episodes long to take a character of this magnitude and kill them off this way. So I'm, I'm more apt to believe that that character is not dead. Okay. All right. Interesting. Well, we'll have to see if that uh, is a possibility, but Rachel, I thought Cole would die. I didn't know he would die this early. Mm-hmm. All right. Cause like, I still think Valk is the albino from DS9 <laughs> and Cole is house of core and core has to get revenge on the albino for killing his son, who I think is, is Cole. <laughs> so I knew that I was like, Cole has to die and Valk is going to be in part or in whole the cause of his death. Um, so this is all fitting into my tinfoil plan <laughs> very well. Um, but I just didn't think it would be this soon. Sure. It's interesting. There's going to be a lot more, uh, a lot more plot than maybe I was anticipating. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be very interested, of course, as a, uh, resident continuity nut to see if that connection is, is actually made. Well, so to close us out, at least with the episode discussion, so Tyler and Burnham share a tender moment of understanding in Michael's quarters. Stamets speaks to Lorca and volunteers to make one more jump to safety, but tells Lorca that it will be his last. So ship goes to black alert. Stamets goes into the chamber to get ready, but it looks as though at the last minute or the last second, rather, Lorca apparently changes the coordinates or he changes something about the jump and discovery ends up in a totally unknown destination. It's complete disarray. Crew doesn't know what's going on. It doesn't look like Lorca knows what's going on, but who knows, but they're in this space surrounded by debris from Klingon ships. And that's what we have to go on uh, until January 7th when the show comes back. So guys, I'm, I, this is a relatively open-ended part of the conversation, but what the hell do you guys think is going on here? Because I'm I'm a little in the dark. But Zachy, what what struck you about how this episode ended, especially as an ending to quote unquote chapter one? Well, you know, j- just when you're like, ah, oh, Lorca, what a guy. You know, <laughs> he has to do that one thing. You're like, Damn it. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah. I, I mean, I don't know, you know, and I, and truthfully, I, I almost, I wonder if the, the creatives know really, you know, like, I feel like <laughs> mm-hmm. sometimes it feels like sometimes you put these plot twists in and then you're like, okay, we'll figure this out later. You know, right. <laughs> uh, I have no idea. I, I obviously, uh, th- they have an entire multiverse of possibilities. I think a lot of people yes. online are like, oh, are they in the Kelvin universe? I think we can rule out the Kelvin universe. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. necessarily rule out the mirror universe only because Jonathan Frakes sort of gave the game away when he said that he's helming an episode set in the mirror universe. So that's mm-hmm. a possibility, I suppose. I do, you know, Stamets has the Gary Mitchell eyes. That's what I find fascinating. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, that's an excellent point that I, uh, how did I not think I'm wondering that? if that's he's going to be moving styrofoam cups through the air. That's, that's. <laughs> they're, they're slightly less shiny. That's true. Right. They're yeah. more glassy <laughs> than shiny. Shiny, <laughs> right. Which apparently that was tinfoil inside contact lenses. It just Ouch. boggles my mind. That's Ouch. With, yeah. with, uh, with, um, for Gary Mitchell? For Gary Mitchell, Good yeah. Lord. He said that those bugged the hell out of him and that he had to look through pinholes. So that's why he's always like putting his head back because that's the only way he could see when they were actually shooting the episode. Gary Lockwood. And what's, what's crazy is about he, that is that's such an effective – like it makes him seem even more otherworldly the way he does that. Yeah. Yeah. Funny. Wow. Well – if he does go Gary Mitchell, then we at least we know that his weakness is now a giant boulder. At least there's <laughs> there's that a giant a giant styrofoam boulder, right? <laughs> giant styrofoam paper mache boulder. boulder. And if he makes a uh, a tombstone, then the middle initial will have to be incorrect. Gabriel R. Lorca isn't R his middle <laughs> initial anyway? I, I don't know. Have I haven't seen his. I'm I'm not doing enough digging. I don't know what's going. Too too consumed with with too many other things, I guess, to pay attention it's, to that. It's Gabriel Mere Universe, Lord. <laughs> right. if, if you did some digging, you'd know. <laughs> oh well, his middle his middle name is Javad Iqbal. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, you win. Uh, Rachel, where where does this episode leave you as far as your sense of possibility, where you think things are at? Oh, they're in the mere universe. Yeah, I'm calling it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Lorca want, wanted to go there because he like because like I said, he's has a fascination mm-hmm. with the mere universe, and um, that's what I think. Okay. Do you think he could, like, if he, maybe he idealizes the kind of, if, if he knows anything about the mirror universe, maybe he's idealizing human humanity taking a more militaristic bent. You think the mirror universe could scare him straight? <laughs> maybe. I would kind of like to see that. Although it would be kind of funny if we saw Lorca's mirror universe counterpart and he was just like this meek and bumbling and scared. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be interested in that. Cicero, how about you, man? How does this, uh, how does this cliffhanger leave you? How does it leave you feeling? What does it give you with, as it relates to a sense of possibility? Well, well, first off, I I can't, I can't stop thinking about, uh, the inevitable episode based on what you're saying of, uh, 
you know, a Christmas Carol featuring Gabriel Lorca. Three otherworldly spirits from the mirror universe. Um, but, uh, but so here's the thing. I, I was so enraptured. Uh, I was so swept up in the siren song of compassionate Gabriel Lorca that I didn't even realize at that last moment that he had done something like it, oh. it wasn't even perceptible to me until you said something about it. And I had to go back and rewatch. And I was like, Oh, Holy crap. That, you know, that was a thing that happened. You locker, you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, a- again, you know, I'll go back to the performances. Uh, you know, I, I would stand up and applaud, um, but uh, you know, nobody can see me do it. And uh, and Shia LaBeouf does it better for me than, than anybody does anyway. So, um, but like, yeah, like I, I, I just don't, I don't know, I don't know where they are. Um, you know, I, I think if if Rachel calls it, Rachel calls it. I think she, you know, she's been right about a lot of things so far this year. Um, so yeah, maybe they're in the mirror universe, and uh, you know, we'll see what happens next. Um, let me let me pose a freeform question to anybody who has an answer. Um, is do you guys think there's a possibility that wherever they ended up was not part of the plan? Like, did he maybe change the coordinates at the last second as a direct reaction to Stamets's ultimatum, saying this is the last time? Was it more directed at Stamets, and could this have been an accident that he now has to try and climb his way out of? Maybe, but that's not how I interpret it. So, like, Lorca definitely had a face when Stamets was like, just one jump, and then I gotta, you know, get looked at by doctors. Yeah. Um, And I interpreted that as Lorca being like, oh, shit, I have to, like, I have to do my evil plan now oh, before like I'm ready. Ahead of schedule. Yeah, uh-huh. and, and so... I think that that's possible, but I think it's also possible maybe because he did it ahead of schedule. He did it wrong Wrong. or without enough information Mm -hmm. and maybe he did. Yeah. So, so maybe you got something there. Okay. What do you guys think? I, I, uh, I definitely think that Lorca wants to protect his ship. And what is the discovery without a navigator to who can run the spore drive? Mm -hmm. Um, so that if, if, if there was a change in the navigation and Lorca was the one that was responsible for making that change, um, there definitely is something to to be said about him intentionally getting them lost in space. <laughs> um, so you're just looking at the better angels of his nature. Like, right. he, oh, it's good. He, well, it's good that he did this. Right. Well, well. So you know, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just spinning for him. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm his Kelly Conway. You know, there are some facts. Um, so, but, but, but he. So like, you know, he he did this thing and got them. You know, he would try and get them further away. So that maybe he could take the time, you know, maybe in his head to to convince Stamets that maybe he wants to reconsider that Mm -hmm. jump being, you know, not his last jump. Because, I mean, they're screwed now. Like, I mean, if if Stamets, if Stamets doesn't jump back into the spore drive, then they're just stuck there. They're I mean, they're Voyager 2.0 now. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. I, I think he did not want to go back. I think they were, you know, he's like, they're going to be giving me a medal or something. There was something sure. back home yeah. that he wanted to avoid at all costs. Sure. Uh, mm. Clearly. I mean, the, maybe, maybe the notion of giving him a medal was some kind of a ruse for, for some kind of broader trouble that he's in or something. So there's something he's avoiding. Well, I mean, do you think he, it might, oh, go ahead. Might be, oh, sorry. Do you think it might be connected to Cornwell is alive and on my ship now and she wants to take my if command? If I were to guess, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, well, she's not on the ship. She was at the, at the space station. She was at the, uh, but she's, she but the, she's uh, alive and she, right, she's got right, the dirt right. on, on Lorca. Right. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think I think there's there's definitely uh, some legs to that. I think the other part of that also is that he is a warrior, and mm-hmm. and you know he he exists to fight, and you you see this in soldiers that have uh, been you know unbelievably successful in war. That when the war is over, they don't. No, they that is when the fear for them sets in because they don't know how to be anything other than what they have been in these you know just the of you know the most stressful of times so sure you know who who is gabriel Lorca when there are no when there's nobody to fight and that is something that scares him when other when other people are around that have to tell him what to do and he really kind of has to listen to them. Hmm. Um, So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, maybe he did this so he wouldn't have to deal with any of that stuff. Sure. Well, it's a hell of a question to leave us on as we now have to endure the weight of no new Star Trek discovery until the new year. Definitely leaves us with a lot of uh, hanging possibilities at what could come down the pike. But uh, thank you guys, as always, for a great discussion about the episode. We have a couple of listener questions before we close out of this one. So why don't we open up the old communicator? The first one is from a listener that I know named Alicia Diaz. And uh, the reason that I'm addressing it, so she asks, if you were writing this narrative arc, what would you do with it next? I think we kind of answered that. Yeah. You know, we all have we all have some ideas of where this could go, where we would like to see it go. So uh, I think we we answered that. I mean, I don't think that there's anything else specifically that comes to mind about a direction I would like to to take the show if I were in the driver's seat myself. Honestly, this is something that's kind of hard for me to answer because I'm enjoying the ride. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like that answer would be easier to give if I had a little bit more discontent with what I was seeing, but I'm not. I don't know. You guys I'm with feel you. kind of similarly? Yep. Star Trek, well, uh, Star Trek Discovery, Quantum Leap. <laughs> so every leap of the spore drive brings them to another point in the Star Trek universe where they interact with uh, different members of the crew in the future, in the past, doesn't matter. And every jump is one jump closer to the jump home. <laughs> and Scott Bakula. Right, yes, right. and Scott, Bak- <laughs> Scott Bakula shows up. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's a good You know point. what I want to see? Uh, I want, I want uh, Michael's wacky uh, foster brother, Cybok, to show up. 
<laughs> and just make her life miserable for one crazy day. <laughs> oh, that Cybok. Yeah. Crazy brother Cybok. Here you go. Here, this is like the way to piss off everybody. You have Cybok show up, and it's the episode where Discovery bumps into V'ger. <laughs> just be pissing everybody off. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I would actually love to see that. <laughs> oh, well, something something to think about for headcanon, right? Crazy, crazy cyborg. He's walking around smiling. At I see people. him wearing like it's a like, bathrobe and bunny slippers walking around the, <laughs> the halls of discovery. Right. With a disco shirt on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Michael's just brushing her teeth and all of a sudden her, the, the door to the quarters opens and it's like, who's there? Inside, everyone has a secret. <laughs> no, no, this is this is gonna be like 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 college wacky college student cyborg before he got before he discovered religion. Crazy know? hippie cyborg. <laughs> oh man, uh, dad kicked me out of the yeah, house. Right. <laughs> he cut me off. Can I crash at your place? No. <laughs> Play some Romulan nail pong. <laughs> uh, he would be a good presence at one of those bumping parties i'll yes, tell you that yes. much yeah good old cybok cybok and hippie stamets team yes. up that would be that would be something to see uh well we have one more question from uh, aaron henley and he says do you think what happened to stamets in the future may have ended up being covered up by a certain section of starfleet to help explain what could be a massive cannon storm from the original series also, do you think Lorca was sincere in his wanting to help save the Povins in his discussion with Stamets? I think he was, but Jason Isaacs is so good, we still aren't sure, and I love that. Aaron, I think we addressed the second part of your question. It's a, it's very good, and I think we feel pretty similarly. Like, yeah, we don't really know completely what's going on there. First part of your question, though, it's an interesting theory. Uh, I mean... Conceivably, there's something that happens with the spore drive that uh, makes it a non-issue. And I mean, whether or not that's just a natural progression of continuity, the fact that this is a story being told after all of those other stories, the mechanicals part of it, or if they decide to explain it, then a Section 31 cover-up would certainly make sense, at least to me. But uh, I don't know. I mean... I really don't know what to expect from the legacy of the spore drive once it is taken off of the table for this show, presuming it is at all. Uh, and, you know, we still don't have any uh, solidified answers to exactly what the deal is with Discovery. I mean, we have a, a greater idea of where it sits in the pantheon of the Federation and of Starfleet specifically, but. Uh, a lot of unanswered questions. You guys pick up on anything? Is there anything that lends to Aaron's theory? <sighs> yeah, yeah. I don't. I like. I. You can't. You can't know whether or not Stamets. You know, will be covered up. Uh, will you know Stamets' existence will be uh, covered up by Section Thirty One? Um, maybe. Maybe as we as we throw out uh, wacky theories maybe the discovery never comes back to the alpha quadrant um, or from, from wherever mm. they are. And it does become kind of like a quantum leap where they're, or, or, or a Voyager 2.0 where they're trying to make their way back to wherever it is from wherever it is that they are. 
Um, and Section 31 just kind of erases the fact that the entire ship existed. Um, but I think that the spore drive will exist as long as Discovery, the show exists, because what is Discovery, mm-hmm. the ship, without the spore drive? Like, it, it is as fundamentally sure. important to, uh, you know, as, as as a character on the ship as the rest of the, the, the crew is. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of hard to imagine the show without it right now. But, uh, well... We've come to the end of a long journey, uh, at least the beginning of a long journey. It, it's uh, been a long road. Is now completed. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time, but our time is finally near. <laughs> that was excellent. I like that. Uh, well, but I mean, it's it's been fun. I mean, um, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed talking about this show with you guys. It's been great taking in new Star Trek, uh, but that is going to do it for episode eight of Discovery Debrief. We hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. And if you would be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show on iTunes or Facebook. It only takes a minute, and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it is posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles. And feel free to send us questions through our Twitter, our Facebook like page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. And be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes. And speaking of which, uh, we plan to be back next week with our regular panel to discuss the entirety of the season's first chapter. Uh, we probably won't be too heavy handed when it comes to specifics, but we'll give just kind of a general impression of where we think the show is at, at this point, as we are waiting for new episodes to begin. And, uh, we'll also have some details, uh, next week about what will follow, uh, the recap episode and how we'll try and fill some of the time in your podcast listening schedule between that point and, uh, and the beginning of chapter two of season one of Star Trek Discovery. So stick with us and we'll plan to come back to you periodically over the next few months, probably not as regularly with other Star Trek goodness, hopefully some things that you guys will really enjoy to try and scratch that itch that this mid-season finale definitely created. So as always, thank you again so much for downloading the show, for listening, and for uh, Zachy, Cicero, Rachel, and myself, please go boldly, my friends. (laughs) 